I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times, or to reconcile a troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? And what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, John Pulse, co-founder and co-owner of Full Life Comprehensive Care. Thanks for having me, Eric. Uh, thank you for coming out. I appreciate it. I'm excited to get you here. I know that you are a busy man doing a lot of different things, so I'm glad we were able to get you out here. Absolutely. Appreciate it. So I wanted to ask you something. Sure. And I'm serious. I'm not kidding around. Is there any part of you that has designs on like public office? Public office? Um, like running for something? Sure. I mean, it's, uh, I'd be lying to you if I told you I hadn't considered it at some point before. Um, Notice we haven't talked about this beforehand, but I, I just wondered that about you. Sure. I mean, I've, I've considered and, and looked into local representation stuff, um, you know, Palm Beach County commissioners and things like that. You know, I've always just really enjoyed connecting with people and uh, I have that advocacy in me as well. And I'll tell you why I say that, because I've known you for a while even just through social media, sort of tracked your career at least a little bit from the early going. And it seemed like even when you were in school at FAU in the Department of Social Work, you were always in these leadership or up front. And it seems like wherever you go, you just find yourself in front of audiences, connected with people. I think you have like a mind for policy and kind of like a natural sense of justice or even just like an interest in that. And I think it comes across in a way that's um, maybe like natural leader-esque. I, I don't know. It, it, for me, it's easy to see, and it wouldn't surprise me if you had thought about it. And I wanted to ask you if that was something you never thought about. Listen, I, I really appreciate the kind words and absolutely is something I've thought about. And I can't exactly say when I became more interested in some of the advocacy roles. Um, I will tell you one of the passions of mine has been surrounding harm reduction and substance use. Um, and throughout my undergraduate and graduate school, and I think my experience and some of my earlier experience in the field, working in sober livings, working as a behavioral health tech, um, I noticed a huge gap in care. And it was something that what a lot of professionals were really resistant about. There's much greater acceptance now, but previously there was a lot of resistance to it. It's funny. I was just talking to uh, Mark Cantor. I was just interviewing him and this topic came up. And again, my thought about it is this. Substance use disorder treatment is a relatively new thing, right? It's literally like 70 years old or so, give or take, depending on what you count as like the first treatment centers or first attempts to treat. I mean, it, you can actually go back a lot further if you're talking about like 
sanitariums were doing, if you count that as treatment or what hospitals were doing and, you know, at earlier times. Um, <clears throat> but it's an evolving thing. I can remember me and Adam Staslov and myself working at like National Recovery Institute in the mid 90s. And there were actually clinicians there that were against what was called dual di- diagnosis at the time is now considered, you know, co-occurring disorders, but really argued against the idea of comorbidity of psychiatric disorders and substance use, and that these clients shouldn't be on psychotropic medications, and that it was really just a crutch, and it was, you know, another way of acting out your addiction. And now, the idea of comorbid disorders, substance use disorders, kind of married to psychiatric disorders. It's like the vast majority of people being treated for substance use disorders have some co It's universally accepted. There's no one working in a treatment center that doesn't know about that. Absolutely. And, and I, beyond that, the resistance towards incorporating any type of traditional medical treatment into substance use disorder treatment, there was a ton of resistance to it. And I experienced the adverse effects of that personally, and I've seen the adverse effects professionally, where we have folks that have no medical background or perhaps um, just addiction-related treatment, and they are uh, trying to prevent people from seeking medical care that they genuinely need. Right. I think that's I think that's the thing. It's when people overgeneralize oftentimes their own experience or their own beliefs or their own kind of maybe like a more narrow sampling of understanding of how this works. That's the liability is you're going to get these ideas that what I believe works is going to work for everybody. And this is the correct way of doing things. My way is the right way. And it, your way might be the right way for some people, but you're going to miss you're going to miss a whole lot of people if we're not considering the whole person. Absolutely. With that said, I want to talk to you a little bit about what you've done with Full Life. I really am so impressed with what you've got going on because we're... We're all here at the 4,400 building. So I see, you know, I know a lot of the people who are working with you and your company. How many therapists do you guys employ? We employ eight therapists currently. And how many case managers? Nine. So that's amazing. And I think I've said this to you before. It's like you guys really have created your own sort of system of care there where you employ the amount of clinical staff that you might need to start like a treatment center, really like you have is that many people working with you, which I think is, is great. But moreover, I think what you've done with the case management component and fusing that with clinical, it's so much more comprehensive that you're really filled in a huge gap. We're, we're here in the middle of, the Silicon Valley of substance use disorder treatment, South Florida. There are hundreds, actually, I think probably like a couple of thousand facilities in the state. Um, I was looking at the, I was trying to look that up once. I was looking at the the number of licensed facilities in Florida, and it's hard to get an exact number because the pages, it shows the licenses, but there are some facilities that have multiple licenses, so it's hard to count. So I was looking like, I think, at that time, Delray had 
Delray Beach alone had like 16 different programs that were licensed. That's just Delray Beach. So I think Boynton had another like 20. So if you go town by town, you could see where these numbers are going. But I think a lot of times what treatment centers are really good at is the upfront work, getting someone detox, sober, teaching them about recovery, and then there's discharge. But often the traditional pathway of substance use disorder treatment, like going to a halfway house, that's great for some people, but there are a lot of people who do not have the life skills to kind of manage that level of independence. And without the appropriate support in the community, they're going to fail. And the fact that you have this kind of clinical and case management model that's comprehensive, that offers those additional life skills and support around things like making sure you're consistent with psychiatric appointments, making sure that you're taking medications, making sure that you're going to meetings, all these different things that your staff is doing. I think you guys have plugged in a huge gap in the system of care. And I think the fact that you guys have had such success so quickly really speaks to the meeting of an of a previously historically unmet need. Absolutely. And that was something that Brian, my partner, and I were very passionate about and have been passionate about. There's, I don't know if obsession is the right word, but there's a tendency to only focus on the acute care model of mental health and addiction treatment. That's perhaps due to managed care, insurance companies. Um, and But it's, it's an old model that can be effective for some people, but there's also a population of people that it's not effective for. And by acute care model, I mean we stabilize in a higher level of care, residential detox, residential psych, we transition to some type of supported housing, hopefully, like a halfway house, which can be a gradual step, but often it's still a very large step. And we send some referrals for outpatient therapists and outpatient psychiatrists, and we wish people the best of luck. So I'm going to go ahead and say this so that you don't have to. Mm -hmm. But the answer to that conundrum of why is financial, right? I remember working at the National Recovery Institute like in the 90s. And the CEO coming in and talking to all of us, and he said, "Every and I quote, every company wants to sell its most as much of it as it can of its most expensive product." You know, that's it. Uh, there's the medium price loss leaders or whatever, but you want to sell your high end um, product, and in acute care settings. The high-end product is the detox. It's the highest level of care because that's what gets the biggest reimbursement from insurance companies. So most of these programs are focused on what goes on in the front end. Detox, residential, PHP, where the large reimbursements are. Where we faltered is on the back end, aftercare, because individual psychotherapy, case management, how often is that even reimbursable for someone who's already been in treatment for like 90 days, you know? So, and, and at what quality is it going to be available from an institution whose primary objective is this model, acute care? Of course, and... 
I've seen a couple treatment facilities that used to have outpatient uh, levels of care shut it down. And it's very rare that you will see a place that has an active outpatient program these days, meaning one that has individual therapy and group once a week or something along those lines. And I've even seen announcements made, you know, we're going to put more focus into our residential and higher levels of care. And I know why they're doing that. And like you said, it is financial. Um, but what's what's bizarre about it is that it's actually it's much more advantageous for insurers and third-party payers to pay for outpatient services, pay for case management, which they often don't, and pay for outpatient therapy because that can prevent somebody from going into a higher level of care uh, and having that outpatient intervention. But still, the focus overall remains on that higher level of care, which is why we wanted to fill that gap. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you nailed it. And clearly the sort of sudden and immediate popularity of your program. I mean, you guys are busy. Yeah, we are really busy and where we found I would say the greatest need is really with that high acuity psychiatric client, somebody suffering from schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, um maybe a bipolar one, severe and persistent substance use disorder uh, with a lack of life skills, really the complex cases that simply need that step down and that transition with a team as opposed to being left to their own devices. Yeah, no, that's it. And I think about it. And so you think about like the tradition for people who are less familiar, this is the Florida model looks like, right? Someone comes down here from New Jersey or wherever else. You enter into a residential program. If you require detox, you get detoxed until you're stable enough to enter into like a regular residential program. You're not experiencing active withdrawal symptoms that need medical intervention. So you go into residential care or partial hospitalization where you're receiving these group therapy and individual treatment all day. You're learning about recovery. You're processing your own issues. Uh, hopefully you're working with some capable people who are help who are going to be there to help you identify what it is that's most important to uh, work on and maybe you're dealing with mood stability and it's like you're getting it together you're becoming stable and sober and a couple months of that you're going to be discharged to a lower level of care. You're going to go into intensive outpatient. So maybe you're going to group nine hours a week and you're going to these groups at night. So that frees you up so that you could start to integrate into the community during the day, hopefully get a job, uh, move into tr move out of the treatment center and into transitional housing. So you're taking these steps toward independent living. And in a perfect world, that all works for you. You make the transition a few months down the road, six months down the road, whatever the commitment of the halfway house is. You're ready to get your own apartment. Hopefully by that time you're entrenched in the recovering community. You've got a job. You've got some things going on for yourself. You're stable and you're ready to go. You're ready to do it. And that pathway has worked for lots and lots of people, but not everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And even more importantly, when you're going through that system of care, it's very much based on you having next to perfect sobriety and mental health throughout the experience, especially in a lower level of care. And if you don't, if you have the 
the dreaded relapse, if you have a recurrence of psychiatric symptoms, uh, you often are abruptly discharged and told you need to go into a higher level of care. And then we have the cycle of we're in and out of acute care over and over again, where when our team works with people, their status or admission into a treatment facility really isn't it's relevant if they, if they're getting care and, and we hope they will but if they're discharged for some reason we still work with them if they have to transition to an apartment we work with them if they're you know unable to be found and missing we're still working with them and so we're part of their care team wherever they are and of course an admission to a higher level of care is necessary at times but often i find that it's it happens when people just don't know what else to do. Hundred percent. My my feeling about that, and what it sounds like you're the problem that you're actually addressing, is that when you have these individuals who are struggling with the life skills to manage psychiatric illness at these lower levels of care, so you do a great job at the. Um, in your primary care treatment program and you transition into transitional housing where you're expected to be able to be a little bit more independent and all of a sudden you're stare your face to face with like a washing machine and you don't know how it works and you're not able to wash your own clothes and now you're the smelly kid at the halfway house or you know you don't know what to do about a job interview or you don't have the organization skills to manage the unstructured time and independence that's required to get jobs um, and and do and live in a community of people without the structure of like a highly staffed facility. And so ultimately failure in to thrive in those environments results in relapse, results in decompensation back into like psychiatric um, crisis and like you said, we don't know what else to do and the client doesn't know what else to do, but where they will be safe is another institution. So we go back into residential care of some, some kind and we start over at baseline, but the problem there is we're not really addressing the underlying issue, which is life skills and what's gonna happen when I'm trying to manage myself at these lower levels of care. Absolutely. And imagine somebody that has <clears throat> progressed to that extent in their recovery, whether it's mental health, substance use, or both, and perhaps they've uh, stabilized for the most part, and maybe they've gotten a job, they've done other things they feel good about, so they're rebuilding relationships, perhaps they've started going back to school, and they either have an issue with their mental health, or they have a substance use uh, relapse or recurrence of use. And now we're saying, well, all these things that you've built up for yourself, well, that's got to go to the wayside. So that relationship that you built up, that job that you've received, that school that you enrolled in, it's not important anymore. And as the client, you may be thinking, it's really important to me. Uh, I know I made a mistake. I know I should have taken my meds when I didn't. You know, I, I know I shouldn't have drank. Uh, but can we try something else? And again, I think it it comes down to really just not knowing what to do with people. And it's harder to 
address that underlying issue and takes more complexity and creativity and intervention as opposed you know to actually address what's going on with that individual and what led to the mental health decompensation the substance use relapse as opposed to just putting them back into an inpatient facility which is actually easier way easier and i think it's part of the pathology of that right part of it where it's problematic is it's this kind of a symbiotic negative contract that exists between the system and the clients because on the systems part it is a path of least resistance to just put them back to a higher level of care in a treatment environment where they'll be safe and it's an easy thing to do we just readmit them get the insurance certified and off we go again it's easy and it's also easy for the client path of least resistance um, and I think the f- when we create this revolving door that this is happening systemically, it leads to this institutional dependency that people now, now it's become like a meme, right? It's the, it's the Delray shuffle, they call it. And this is really the dynamic that we're talking about today is really what has perpetuated this whole cycle of institutional dependency that sort of feeds the needs of the institutions and it feeds the needs of the clients. And I don't think it's really what anybody wants. So I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just talking about what's going on. I don't think it's really what anyone wants. I think in a perfect world, we want these clients to come to treatment and we want them to succeed. I think that's what the treatment centers want. I think it's what the clients want, it's what their families want, it's what we all want. But it doesn't always happen. And if you're, and someone has to really take a hard look at where the gaps in service delivery are that's not meeting the needs. I mean, if we're going to be the Silicon Valley of drug rehab here, right? If we're going to be the Silicon Valley of substance use disorder treatment in South Florida, where there's all these facilities and we're basically importing clients by the thousands from all over the country. We have to be able to meet their needs because essentially it's a system. And I think you're really, in, in the private sector, really kind of fostering something that has gone neglected for a period of time. And there are other people who are doing different variations of it. But to watch what you've done here, because you started, it was just you and Brian. And to watch you, and it hasn't been that long. How long have you guys been doing this? So, you know, Brian and I were both doing similar work in separate capacities. So when uh, I was the director of case management for Guardian. Right, you were with Guardian. Correct. And Brian was kind of doing it independently. And then we joined forces and had a vision of a different model. And and actually, you know, although... um, you know, Brian and I, you know, did start this alone. You know, Craig Mistroni, who was uh, or who is our director of uh, client services, case management, was with us at the very beginning as well. And we essentially set out on this mission, and uh, it's it's gone exceptionally well. And my my feeling is that in the not so distant future, these types of programs, I hope will be commonplace. And even more so, my hope is that insurance companies will eventually pay for them, pay for this type of service. 
Well, if programs like Guardian, you know, which is kind of a successful, similar model, and what you guys are doing, you know, if they're successful, you can guarantee there are people who are looking at this being like, hey, we could, we should try, you know, we should do a version of it. And I think imitation is the form of flattery, but it also speaks to the need and that if it works, more people are going to want to do it. By the way, uh, Craig Mastroni, that's a recent promotion. Yes, it is. So tell me what he's doing there. So essentially with Craig, and again, we've been, and just realized I didn't answer your question before. So we've officially been open about a year and a half. Uh Um, And so Craig, he essentially is overseeing our case management team. So the the case managers and all the cases are ultimately under Brian and I's supervision, but Craig is their first point of contact. All right. So let's take a moment and give a big shout out to Craig Mastroni on his uh his promotion there. Congratulations, Craig. Absolutely. I know him. He's a good dude. He is. He and I'm, is. I'm happy to see him succeeding and thriving with you guys and uh that he's doing this. I think it's really cool. Definitely integral to our organization. Really yeah. is. Solid guy, quality guy. Yes. Yeah, man. So that's how the model works. So you and um, Brian actually serve as kind of like clinical leadership, like the clinical directors. Correct, correct. And then we actually have Casey Brannigan, who is our clinical director. Um, so essentially, the way that it works is that... Wait a minute, I didn't know that. Casey's the clinical director? Yes, that's correct. Oh, okay. Tell me about that now. Yeah, so as, as we've expanded, uh, we've needed to have more leadership roles within the organization. So although Brian and I are still very much an active part of the day-to-day operations and every client that comes through, we needed people in more leadership and supervisory positions to provide guidance to our clinicians as well as our case managers. And Casey has been amazing as well and was with us for a while before he stepped into that role. Um, But essentially, Casey supervises all of our clinicians and does supervision with them and provides the um, essentially how, you know, in a treatment center, the clinical director makes the primary therapist assignments. Casey makes the assignments for our clients to each therapist. Wow. Okay. I'm actually glad to know that. That actually makes a lot of sense. And I'll tell you what you've resolved for me is Casey's supposed to have taken me fishing. Uh, we've been working on that for about the last three months, and it hasn't happened. And now I know why. Yeah, absolutely. Now I know why. I didn't realize he was the clinical director, so I can give him a little bit of grace on that because I could, I could imagine with what you guys are up to, he's very busy. He absolutely is, and yeah, you can definitely blame that on Brian and I. Yeah. Okay. All right. Come on, Case. Let's get it together here. Yeah. Man. Right. <laughs> so we were supposed to have gone. He knows where all the spots are. You know, he's like a guy's like half a professional fisherman. You mm-hmm. know. Yep. Um, so I'm waiting to get out there with him because I'm sure if I go with him, I'm actually going to catch something, which is good. Definitely. You know, when you only have divided time, you, you want to, you want to make sure you're getting stuff. Absolutely. So I'm looking forward to that, but you know, I realize I'm going to have to wait my turn because his attention also is divided into, um, the behemoth that is full life comprehensive care. Yeah, absolutely. Right. All right. So that's exciting, man. I didn't realize that you actually had, so you guys have two supervisors, essentially, which is Craig is overseeing the case management and Casey is your clinical director over the therapist. That's correct. Wow. And does he actually meet with these guys for clinical supervision or is that more? He does. He does. So Casey meets, we have uh, group supervision for the therapist um, within our organization. And then I also 
myself and Craig do supervision with the case managers weekly too. Wow. So you guys are on it because you're, you're also doing, you also have um, your own like private practice. Absolutely. Yeah, I do as well. Um, And we've, you know, Brian and I, as full life has expanded, uh, we've kind of simultaneously been reducing our individual practices. Um, But yeah, I absolutely still have a private practice and um, still see clients weekly as well. I, I never, I never want to be in a place where I'm not working with clients. This is uh, really cool. I didn't realize. I mean, I knew what you guys were up to, but I didn't realize how much of a system you had created as far as now there's like hierarchy that's part of it. Sure. We wanted, and something that I've perhaps had um, negative experiences in the past, I'll say, is that I wanted anybody that was working with us through our organization to feel supported and feel that they had multiple people they could go to accessibility from a leadership standpoint is incredibly important to me that I'm accessible to our case managers, that I'm accessible to our therapists and that they also have other people to access as well for support. Gotcha. So that's again, like any good agency, you want to make sure there's a system of care and checks and balances and that there's someone for people to go to because we're not actually in the walls of a treatment center, right? We're out here in the community and you don't want to leave somebody stranded with a decompensating psychiatric client feeling like, Hey, I am now on my own to manage what could potentially be hazardous. Absolutely. And we, I, I believe we do that. Well, it's difficult because we, we don't have, I mean, we are in the sanctuary suites building of 4,400, we have multiple offices, but ultimately we don't have that freestanding agency where people are constantly walking by each other in the halls. And so we've really had to utilize technology and other forms of communication to still have that connectivity and that support in, in place where. Do you guys have a system for that? So we do. And it's based on, so we have week, weekly supervision. We also have um an EMR uh, that we use uh, where... What do you guys use? So um, we use TherapyMate for all of our clinical services. TherapyMate? Correct. And then we actually, for our non-clinical work, and so our interventions, recovery coaching, case management, we use an application called Basecamp, which can function... It's It can help have uh, discussions about clients or client issues in a way that there's there's like comment threads. It's, it's really cool. It's a way, it's again, it's another way to have like a hub for discussion and intervention for clients. Each client is actually considered a project within Basecamp. Gotcha. Gotcha. Oh, okay. So it's, um, I'm trying to think because it's like a Microsoft application that's sort of similar that it's like projects but i know people who manage therapy cases that way because it's sort of you can separate them and segment them and segment the uh projects into sections where you could put different things correct so i am imagining it's something like that absolutely i was gonna say it's microsoft it's the purple one and i forget i forget i forget what 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 it is? You know, I can't think of it. I know what you're talking. You know what about, I'm talking about. I can't think of it either. I yeah. sound really unsophisticated. <laughs> oh, me this, too. Then, this way. <laughs> and which is why I use simple practice. Hence the term simple. The simpler the better. <laughs> yeah, the simpler the better. <laughs> but that's great. So 
you guys have really kind of built out your infrastructure with clinical leadership and uh, two different kind of EMR systems or data management systems that allow you to thread communication to this little mobile army that you got there. Because like you said, there's no central building. Yes, absolutely. And I actually like how uh, the, the analogy of a mobile army, right? Because in essence, what we do is we deploy mental health professionals into the community. And that can be a case manager. It can be a therapist. So it's not uncommon for a therapist to have to respond to crises, uh, perhaps uh, issue a Baker Act, or just a client is just not coming out of their home for whatever reason. And so you know, traditionally there's the limitations of, well, you have to go see the therapist in their office, right? And so we try and remove that barrier. Same with case management. And what again, what we found is that when we can kind of remove some of those traditional barriers where uh, for people to receive mental health services, it's it's really effective for a lot of those folks that they really need a higher level of support. You know, it's funny, whenever I see you, in the parking lot downstairs, in the hallway here, you're on that phone. You're on that phone a lot. And it, it looks like they are important conversations. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, we are. And, and again, that goes back to accessibility. And so that is, that's a commitment that we make to our families that we work with and our clients and, you know, local sober livings and, um, you know, treatment facilities that we will be accessible when need. And so that we can uh, have that more immediate response. I mean, you guys really, like I said before, really seem to have built out the infrastructure of this in a way that seems planned and well thought out. And uh, it sounds like it's really come together. It hasn't been very long. You enjoyed a lot of success. You're out and about in the community, uh, very well thought of by lots and lots of people. You get access to a lot of people. Um, any thoughts about where this is all going in the future? Sure. Great question, Eric. And, and I and I did just want to take a moment, uh, and I'm not sure if I shared this with you before, but we, you know, you and I had had multiple conversations about me wanting to enter into um, private practice and kind of doing my own thing separate from treatment. And I remember we had a conversation. I remember it very clearly. And it was actually in the parking lot at Sanctuary Suites. And, and he said, you know, something to the effect of, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, man, you should just do it. You know, I wish I would have done it a while ago. <laughs> and, and I rem it was just like so simple, but sometimes people say certain things to you and it just kind of clicks. And you were one of many people that told me, just do it. You'll be fine. Right. And, but it felt different coming from you. It felt reassuring. And it was one of the reasons that I ultimately made the leap and have, uh, had the privilege of, um, you know, enjoying this, the success that we've had so far truly. And, and, and as a result, having such an amazing team that I feel privileged that they've you know decided to work with us. Um, so thank you for that. And, but as far as where we want it to go, you know, our hope is to continue to build out, uh, the case management practice and, and to expand that, uh, as long, as well as the clinical therapy practice. Additionally, something, and, and hopefully, uh, uh, you know, I'm not uh, letting something out too soon, but go ahead and talk about it is what, you know, another huge gap that we see is transitional living supports for primary mental health clients, 
right? Dude, is this an exclusive? Am I, are we getting breaking news here? You're getting breaking news. I'm excited. <laughs> it's the first time this uh, ever happened. <laughs> By the time this is released, your place will probably have been open for like six months. But. Sure. But, <laughs> we'll, we'll have an apartment complex by then, hopefully. But you yeah. sort of announced it here first, which yeah. is cool. Well, because, I mean, what I found is that what happens is that now there's several transitional living, sober livings in the area that actually do a really good job with supporting clients with more significant mental health issues. There are several facilities that do. With that said, what I found is that a lot of clients that have the more high acuity psychiatric issues will inevitably be discharged from sober livings and usually not for using substances, right? So usually for a behavioral issue that could be related to their psychosis or their, um, you know, not medication compliant, they're feeling agitated. Um, There could be a self-care deficit and they're not taking care of themselves. So that's another gap that we hope to fill. It's difficult. It really is to segment a population like that when it's not homogeneous because, let me say that differently, it's difficult to segment a population like that when it's not homogenous. Because homogeneous isn't really a word. The difficulty is when you have clients that are less psychiatric, that don't have that those conditions, it's often they're going to be less tolerant of the behaviors of someone who's maybe chronically psychiatrically disordered. So the hygiene issues, some of the idiosyncratic behaviors, Bizarre things that people do, what they say, the lack of uh, social, you know, acumen, all of these things are going to make it hard to deal with. Often, when you have a mixed population facility and the vast majority of the people are kind of more straight substance use disorder, and then you have that one or two or three psychiatric cases, they're really going to stand out. And sometimes in a way that's not to their benefit as far as creating an environment of care where they're going to be understood because they're a standout. Absolutely. And that's what really anyone needs is an environment of care where they're understood and supported and not judged. And we can't expect somebody coming out of a primary substance use disorder treatment center to have uh, that level of clinical know-how and compassion for their roommates that may really due to psychiatric issues, not may not be bathing, may not clean up after themselves, uh, may be responding to some type of eternal stimuli and, and, and having some breakthrough psychosis. We can't expect folks to have compassion for that necessarily that are in, that are residents themselves of a transitional living house. It's tough. So, um, we hope to, and it's again, it's kind of a um, a bold idea, perhaps, but we hope to fill that gap as well by creating a transitional housing that's more primarily focused on the needs of people with psychiatric. Disorders. Yeah, entirely focused on that. In fact, um, yeah, I mean, and you know what that looks like, you know, and what the licensing looks like, that and everything like that. Um, we will figure it out as we go along. And certainly we're going to have all those ducks in a row prior to ever opening anything, but 
what we do know is the need exists. And it's interesting because I, you know, when Brian and I, prior to opening this, I had had discussions about our plan and people had concerns about um, the acceptance and viability of it, of, of full life and the case management component. But I feel pretty strongly that as long as we're able to solve a need in the community, that it will be um, viable and sustainable. Well, I think anytime you're doing something that's different than what people have traditionally done, it's going to freak people out. Sure. You know, there are people are probably going to look at that and say, you can't do that. You can't case manage these people with psychiatric disorders in the community in that way. It's too acute. And how are you going to house them in transitional housing? And how's that going to work? And, you know, what's the liability of that? But the fact of the matter is, uh, psychiatric group homes have been in existence for years. It's not, you're doing it in this context mm-hmm. is novel, but the idea of it is not unheard of. Absolutely. And to me, it more mirrors the intention behind deinstitutionalization. And my my dates may be off, but I want to say, wasn't that in the 80s approximately? Um, when they wanted, they had this big movement of deinstitutionalization. They said, you know what, we've kept these people in long-term psychiatric hospitals. Like, and the closest one to us is South Florida State Hospital in Hollywood. Uh, I mean, it's a, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's not a pretty sight. I mean, there's barbed wire, fencing. Um, it's it's a necessary thing for, for certain folks that need to live out their lives there or be there for an extended period of time. But the whole idea behind deinstitutionalization was, you know what, let's take these people and let's reintegrate them back into the community. In... 94, after I had just graduated my undergraduate in psychology, I worked for Henderson Mental Health Center, Central Branch, in Fort Lauderdale. And I had three cases on my caseload that were at South Florida State Hospital. And we worked with the state hospital. And I was on the grounds fairly frequently because the crisis stabilization unit that served the community was also on the grounds of South Florida. I don't know if it's uh, still open, but that was kind of like the South County of uh, Fort Lauderdale. It was the, the free crisis stabilization unit for people who were uninsured. So, and it was on the grounds of South Florida State Hospital. So I was there fairly frequently with clients who were decompensated and were trying to get them, you know, back into whatever their next phase of care was going to be. And I had a couple of cases that were at the state hospital because they wanted to make sure that everybody at the state hospital was under the management of a case manager working in community mental health so that if they were ever stable enough to reintegrate into uh, the ACLFs or the the transitional group facilities and be treated at the community mental health level, you know, an outpatient, that it would happen. And so I actually saw a little bit of that. And I think, um, yeah, it was really interesting because this was sort of shortly after that. And did you ever see the movie... Chattahoochee. I have not. No. No, it's um, oh, what's his name? The English actor uh, Gary Oldman. Okay. Gary Oldman actually plays the part of a uh, psychiatric hospital patient in a Florida State psychiatric hospital, and it shows like the really the deplorable conditions and treatment of people 
during that time prior to deinstitutionalization and when the human rights advocacy committees and all the advocacy groups came into it and started paying attention to this. Because, you know, the treatment of people with psychiatric disorders in psychiatric hospital, horrible. You don't have to go back that far to see these abuses. Yeah, I think that that was part of the sort of publicizing of it. Absolutely. And I'm actually glad you brought up South County because that was, I would say that was my introduction to working with this population and actually really enjoying it. So, you know, I did my undergraduate internship actually at South County Mental Health Center. And I actually fought to have my internship there and to spend an entire summer there. And um, I was actually planning on continuing to work there afterwards. And one of the things I noticed was that I was drawn to working with some of those acute psychiatric uh, patients that had admitted there where a lot of people didn't feel comfortable, but I recognized that they were just people that needed help. And um, I also saw, and this is through no fault of South County. In fact, it's, it's really the only provider of community-based mental health services in South Palm Beach County. And it's a, you know, it, it serves a huge need and with very limited funding, but uh, there was huge gaps. People would come in and out of South County repeatedly, month after month, and um, they would get stabilized, and then um, they would be homeless or have other types of issues, and they would wind up back in the crisis unit over and over again. And then eventually being referred to they would eventually be referred to South Florida State Hospital if they were Baker Acted a certain amount of times within, I think it was, I think it was like three or four months. I think that speaks to the difficulty of the challenge of sustaining people with severe and persistent mental illness in the community and out of these institutions, you know, and that's, that's the challenge. And again, right, it's a relatively new thing because the movement of deinstitutionalization, that's released the 80s. So we're really only talking about this approach to psychiatric disorders for the last 40 years, where this idea of least restrictive environment, of maintaining people in the community, if you can do it, was the goal, and that should always be the goal, right? And that's why on these these care plans for people in the state hospital, they, they all have a care manager in the community, no matter how far gone they may be, because you never want to deprive people of the hope or possibility that at some point they might be stable enough to reintegrate to some lower level of care that's not an institution. You always want to be hopeful for that for people. And I think, you know, again, coming back to you and what you're doing, I think it really... You're, you're having an opportunity to intervene on these people before they've entered into our own version of that cycle, because when people continue to fail in residential treatment uh, at the transitional level of care because of psychiatric disorders, there's no place for them to go where they can they can receive the amount that sort of middle level of care between an institution and transition where they're getting help sort of propped up a little bit and supported uh, in transitional care. Those folks are ending up back in treatment centers. And again, it creates that institutional dependency that in a way is almost like being in a state hospital, right? 
you're in a residential treatment center for three months, you're in a, tra- a halfway house, a transitional, you know, for a month, you're back in residential treatment for another month, you're in a halfway house for two weeks, you're back in residential treatment for a month and a half, bouncing around the cycle. And before you know it, you look back on the year, I spent, you know, 10 out of the last 12 months in residential treatment, you know, and then you get three or four years that look like that, what are you actually saying? This is a person who's kind of like in a state hospital, but they've taken a couple of shots at leaving. Absolutely. And early intervention is something that's so key and that I'm very passionate about in that I see when, if you can intervene early on somebody that has a severe and persistent mental health issue, like schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, um, maybe even just a brief psychotic episode, you can really improve the functioning for the rest of their life. Really, when we see the folks that I would see at South County were generally older. They had been suffering from a severe psychiatric issue for decades, and they would that would lead to their decompensation uh, in many ways. And you know, the but you're absolutely right, Eric. Where somebody that is continuing to go through that system of care, in effect, is institutionalized, and what case management can do, in my opinion, and why I really hope it's more widely adopted, this model, which is based off of what's called assertive community engagement or assertive community treatment, like an ACT team. Um, I hope that it's more frequently adopted and it's more accessible to you know the average person. That's awesome. And uh, you're doing it and kind of putting your money where your mouth is. And clearly the early indications are that there's a need there that you guys are filling. I think that the success of your program speaks to that. So congratulations to you, man. And I, I wish your continued success. I, I think it's really exciting, the transitional housing, and I'm sure that that will be successful like, like you know, the outpatient program has been. Absolutely. I really appreciate that. All right. So if people wanted to learn a little bit more about full life comprehensive care, how would we go about doing that? Sure. Yeah, I know it's a bit of a mouthful. People often just say full life. I can't um, believe I got it right twice. Yeah, yeah, you're doing great. So proud of myself. <laughs> you should be. Uh, well, so um, you can certainly go on our website, and uh, our website is also uh, difficult to fill in. So you could just, if you just Google full life comprehensive care, it'll come right up. Uh, we're working on trying to change the domain. Um, and also, they can just reach out to me directly. Uh, and I still, um, you know, just the model that we have and the accessibility, everything is done off of our cell phones. So whether it's myself, Brian, Casey, Craig, the number you're calling is the number to the phone in our pocket. And, you know, uh, again, some people may think that's odd uh, or they wouldn't want that, but it's just that it just aligns with our model. So with that being said, easiest way to get a hold of Full Life is to call myself or Brian or Casey or Craig directly. Um, and so I'll just give my number now. Uh, then contact me directly at 708-655-1863. All right. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for coming out. Senator John Pulse. <laughs> I like the sound of it, man. I like the sound of it too. I'm not sure my wife would like the sound of it. <laughs> Okay, we haven't discussed our plans to we haven't yeah. discussed our plans for candidacy at home. No, no, not yet, not yet. Yeah, it'll be news to her once she hears the recording. Perhaps.